Well, good morning again. So glad that you are, are here. We've picked up a couple of since we did our initial welcome. Grateful that you are here this morning. This morning, we're continuing um, to walk through our First Corinthians study. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been walking through this study for a number of weeks now, a study through the book of First Corinthians. This morning, we find ourselves in chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. This morning, we're going to pick up where we picked up, or where we ended last week with Paul um, last week addressed the issue of church discipline um, with the congregation here in the city of Corinth. This morning, I've entitled our message, Radically Changed Lives. I chose this title because the life of a believer should look radically different than the life of an unbeliever because we have been radically changed and delivered from the curse of sin by our amazing Savior. Do you agree with that this morning? Do you agree that our lives should look different than those outside the doors of this church that are unbelievers? I hope so. Within um, our study last week, Paul addressed church discipline. He is now addressing litigation amongst believers. Have you noticed, if you watch um, TV, that it seems like most of the commercials today... Um, are, are centered around things like pharmaceutical sales, insurance sales, vehicle sales, cellular phone sales, and then you also have those um, injury attorney commercials. You've got um, the strong arm of the law, you've got the Texas hammer, you've got the one guy that says real clients, real results. You drive down the highway and it seems like every other billboard is a lawyer boasting of winning millions upon millions of dollars for their clients. I don't think any of us would disagree that there are a time we need lawyers and we need a court system. Paul makes that abundantly clear in, in his writings. But, but what we're going to see this morning is that when it comes to the church, when it comes to us having differences one another, we're to take our differences before the saints. We're not to take our differences to the court of law. This week I texted a lawyer friend and I asked him if he had any idea how much money is spent each year in civil law. And I made the statement that I thought that it was probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And he quickly corrected me and he said, no, it's more like in the billions of dollars. He then sent me a link that indicated that litigation spending is a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry and it's only increasing year over year by tens of millions of dollars. Think about that. I wonder how much of those millions of dollars are spent between one Christian suing another Christian. I like what Keith Krill shared. He said, we are a sue-happy society. I'll sue you are two of the most overused words in our American vocabulary today because everybody is suing everybody else. Children are suing parents. Students are suing teachers. Players are suing coaches. Spouses are suing spouses. Christian neighbors are suing each other. Christian faculty members are suing their schools. Churches are suing churches. Um, churches are suing their pastors, pastors, their their, their congregation, and the list goes on and on. 
What we see in our society is nothing new. 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, um, within this city of Corinth, it was made up of a bunch of Sioux happy people as well. William Barclay in his commentary writes, the Greeks were characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were one of their chief um, modes of entertainment. In a Greek society, every man was more or less a lawyer and spent a very great part of his time either deciding or listening to law cases. I mean, think about it today. How many, I don't watch afternoon television, but I know that there's a lot of afternoon court shows, like um, what, what is the, the, the one, um, Judge Judy? You know, shows like that. I mean, we get great entertainment watching um, these shows on television. And what we see today is the same thing that was happening 2,000 years ago. Our message point this morning is this. Paul challenges us to take our problems before the saints. Here's what I love about the Word of God. Many people do not believe that the Word of God speaks about practical issues that you and I deal with on a daily basis. But almost everything you and I face can be found in God's Word. There is an answer to your greatest questions in God's Word. In fact, we read in 2 Timothy 2, 3, 16 through 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word is living. We're told here it is profitable. It is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. The Word of God makes us better. It makes us better as individuals. It makes our families better. It makes us better husbands and wives. It makes us better parents, better children, better bosses, better employees, better students, better athletes. God's Word simply makes us better. We need to take God's Word, and as we're told in James 1.22, we need to be doers of the Word and not just hearers only. Notice our first point this morning. It is this, disagreements between believers. You know, we don't know what kind of disputes were going on within, within this church, but most likely what they were dealing with were civil issues, not necessarily criminal issues. And Paul calls out this church because they were taking their, their trivial um, issues before an unbelieving court system instead of handling them amongst themselves. I've labeled our first subpoint this morning this, living in a grown-up world. You know, sometimes in life, you and I need to put on our big boys and big, big girl pants, don't we? And we need to face um, our issues um, like adults instead of running from our issues. We know this, conflict is nothing new. It, it is not new in, in, in our society. It wasn't new in the ancient society. Conflict has been part of who we are since the very beginning of time, even since the Garden of Eden. This church that we have been studying is a messy church. They were dealing with many doctrinal, moral, and theological issues. As we looked at last week in chapter 5, we saw Paul chastise this church for not judging a brother in their midst who was having an affair with his stepmom. Paul said of that sin that even the pagans within that city would not tolerate it. It was a huge sin. 
And now Paul is calling them out for not handling their disputes internally as believers. In fact, as we walk through this chapter, we will see Paul over and over and over um, post this, pose this question, do you not know? This church, which prided itself in knowledge, was a church that, that, that when it came to dealing with their issues, they acted like they didn't know anything about how to deal with their internal disputes. So notice our second sub-point this morning. It is this. Believers, we are told, will judge the world. Notice in verse 2 we read, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know this? Man, do you realize that, that, that we as believers will play a role in judging unbelievers in eternity? We, we are told this in Daniel 7.22, Matthew 19.28, Luke 22.29-30, and Revelation 24, as well as a few other places in God's Word. One day, you and I will play some role in judgment. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I just know that God's Word tells us that we're going to have a role in that. And what Paul is trying to, to nail down with these believers is this. If one day we're going to judge with Christ in his future kingdom, shouldn't we be able to handle trivial problems between believers? It's important to note here this, that Paul is dealing, again, with trivial issues. He's dealing most likely with civil issues. Paul is not talking about criminal cases here. When we break the law of the land, we will face the judges of the land, right? There is a place for cases within the court of law, but there is no reason for petty disputes between believers um, to be handled in a court of law. Next, Paul tells us that believers will also judge the angels. In verse 3 we read, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Not only will we judge an unbelieving world one day, but somehow we're going to judge angels. Again, what this looked like, we're not told, but, but these would be those fallen angels. The point is this, if we will one day judge the angels whom we cannot see, Shouldn't we be able to handle things internally amongst ourselves? Next, Paul points out that unbelievers should not judge believers. In verse 4, we read, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I like what Pastor Bob Diffenbaugh um, shares. He says, Paul drives home this point he makes in verses 2 and 3 in verse 4. If we as believers will judge both the world and the angels at the coming of Christ, why in the world do we turn to the world's judicial system to pronounce judgment in a dispute between two believers? This is especially true in light of what we learned and study in the early part of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In, in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 14 through 16, we read, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to entrust him? But we have the mind of Christ." So what Paul is saying here is given the inability of the world to comprehend spiritual things, 
That alone disqualifies them from judging us when it comes to trivial matters. Now understand this, Paul um, says that, or is not saying that believers should just forget about their problems with other believers. We know what that's like when we harbor bitterness toward one another or when we harbor ill will toward one another. Um, so often we probably sweep our problems underneath the rug. That could happen at home, that could happen at work, that could happen at church. And eventually what happens when we suppress those things, we eventually blow up, don't we? Paul's not saying that at all. We don't forget about our disputes and, and move on. What he does is he encourages us to take our problems to one another to get on the other side of them. Notice next we read here, believers are to judge believers. In verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. When Paul says, I, I, I say this to your shame, he is certainly reprimanding this church, isn't he? He is embarrassed that there is not a single person within that church that they trust enough to take their problems to. You know, this, this church here, Friendship Baptist Church, is full of godly men and godly women. You know, we may not be able to, to, to walk you through every struggle and every problem that you're going through, but we certainly can point you to someone that can. As a believing church, what we are to do is when we got an issue with one another, we need to take that to one another instead of letting it blow up and become a cancer within the church. Next, Paul tells us the correct way to respond. In verses 7 and 8, we read, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You know, everyone loses when two believers go at each other, right? Um, if you've been a part of the church long enough, then you probably have seen that. You've seen brother against brother within the church. You've seen pastor against congregation or congregation against pastor. One of the reasons that we have churches on every corner is because there was a dispute in one church, and then that, that group that got mad decided that, hey, we're just going to go down the road and we'll start our own church down the road. Um, and, you know, that's not the correct way to deal with our problems, is it? In Matthew 5, 39 through 42, Jesus speaks a little bit to this. He said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also or as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Taking another brother or, 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 or sister to court is inconsistent with who we are as believers. Before salvation, that's what we would have done. Before Christ, that is what we would have done. But post-Christ, we recognize that for the sake of Christ, it is better to suffer wrong. 
it is better to be defrauded. Chuck Swindoll in his commentary writes, any lawsuit, in any lawsuit, the goal is to win big. Nobody files a case with the courts that they expect to lose. Yet according to Paul, the very fact that they resorted to civil litigation meant that from God's perspective, they had already lost. As the world watched Christian love and fellowship disintegrate into hate and infighting, they sneered at the claims of the faith even more than usual. You know, when, when there are struggles within the church that spill out into the community and into um, our society, um, we know that, that Christ is damaged. Or his, the witness we have for Christ is damaged. That's why it's important for us to handle our problems internally. Before Christ, we would have handled them differently, but post-Christ, we're to hand them, handle them in a godly way. Now Paul is going to remind the church in our next, sub, or in our next point that, that, that the difference between the life of a believer and the life of the unbeliever, he's going to speak to that. Our second point is this, live out your new identity. In verses 9 through 11 we read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In, in, verse, in these three verses, Paul tells us that there is a big difference between the life of a believer and the life of an unbeliever, right? We know that because God's Word tells us that. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, I know I read this passage of Scripture um, almost every week, but, but it speaks of, of, of who we are post-salvation compared to who we were pre-salvation. We read here, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. There is a huge difference between at least, or there should be a huge difference between our life before Christ and our life after Christ. Man, who we were, who we were. Paul, 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 Paul says here in this passage of Scripture, or do you not know? Once again, that question is posed to that congregation as well as to us. And he's saying again, if you do not know, you should know. If we don't know these things, we should know. He then lists out multiple sins that unrighteous people participate in. He, he, he lists the sin of sexual morality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greediness, drunkenness, revelers, and swindlers. Man, that is a big, long list. And we just read that those who participate in these particular sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, that is a reprimand that, that Paul is issuing against this congregation as well as against us. I love what Ray Pritchard, how he kind of sums up this here. He said, heaven is not for people who live in their sins. 
If you and I live in our sin, that is an indication that we most likely are not believers. But he says this, heaven is for people who have been forgiven of their sins. A person who lives in their sins is one who is unrepentant. Paul is not saying that we as Christians cannot commit one or more of those sins because we know that we can because some have. A believer may commit one of those sins. They may commit that sin one time or, or 50 times. But eventually, a believer will come to the point where they are broken over their sins. They don't continue to live habitually caught up in that sin. As believers, we must recognize that Jesus always calls us to a place of perfection. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48, told us to be perfect, right? And in and, and 1 Peter 1.16, um, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament where we are called to be holy because God is holy. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 19 through 20, Jesus calls us to righteousness, a, a state of being in right standing before God. God saved us to a standard that the world does not understand, right? The world tells us to live free. The world tells us that if it feels good, just do it. The world tells us that we're free to love whoever we want. And that's not just spoken to those outside the doors of the church. That is spoken to those inside the doors of the church as well. Before Christ, that was certainly our attitude. But post-Christ, we should always strive to have the very attitude of Christ. Remember, we were saved from sexual morality. That is what plagued us in our old life. We were saved from being idol worshipers. We were saved from adulterous relationships. We were saved from homosexuality. We were saved from thievery and greed and, and, and drunkenness. We were saved from being the revelers or angry people, bitter people, or people that speak poisonous words. We were saved from being swindlers. So why would we ever return to the lifestyle that we were saved from is what Paul is trying to drive home here. He says next that this is who we are as believers. In verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, we became a new creation. We became a new person. Man, we were washed, we were justified, we were sanctified. This happened because Jesus saved us and the Spirit of God got into us. Because the Spirit is in us, we are not only a new person, but we should seek out living as the new person that Christ set us apart to become. Ray Pritchard points out seven things God gives children at salvation. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is a good list that, that helps us realize who we are in Christ. The first thing that, that, we, that, that God gives us is a new song. Psalm 43 says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Man, I love that. He put a new song in our heart. I don't know about you, but I love singing new songs. I love singing old songs, but I love singing new songs because that's what God gave me at salvation. He gives us a new name also. We're not identified any longer by that old name that we, who we were before Christ. But in Isaiah 62, 2, we read, The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. He gives us a new heart in Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He also gives us a new life. You know, when we baptize somebody, this is where we get that passage of Scripture about how we are buried with Christ in the likeness of his death so that we might rise to walk in the newness of life. We read here in Romans 6, 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We are born unto newness. He gives us also a new beginning. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, again, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he also gives us a new self. In Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, we read, but this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then finally, he gives us a new birth. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, we are new men, women, students, and children at salvation. And we need to live like the new people we are. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we read, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You and I, we belong to God. He purchased us with his blood. He washed us. He justified us. He sanctified us. And we are new. And as we close this morning, remember this, because we are new in Christ, it is because of who we have become that we should not seek to profit off of brother in the court of law. It is because of who we have become that we should not want to participate in the lifestyle that once consumed us, the very lifestyle that we were saved from. Because we are new, let us live like the new person we have become not like the person we once were. You may be here this morning and you are still caught up in a life of sin. I want you to know this morning, you don't have to remain as you are 
today. You can be saved. You can be set free from the bondage of sin. You can receive the Spirit of God in you at the moment of your salvation. You can be justified. You can be sanctified. You can be made new. What does it take? It takes you calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing through your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and believing in the resurrection and asking the Lord to forgive you of your sins. If you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you this morning to come and make the greatest decision that you could ever make. You may be here this morning and there is a particular sin habit that you are caught up in and you're a believer and you feel like there's no way to get out of it. I want you to know there is a way to get out of it. If you got into it, you can get out of it, okay? You may be here this morning and you, you, need, um, you need a brother or a sister to come alongside you and walk with you through whatever you're going through. I want you to know, there. I would love to do that. There's some men and women in this church that would love to do that. You may be in this room and you got a problem with somebody else in this room or somebody in this church that you need to go to and you need to handle your problems like, like adults. And, and we want to help and walk with you through that as well. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And if there's a decision you need to make, you come. Father God, we come before you this morning, Lord Jesus. Father, Lord, um, I recognize that this is one of those messages, Father God, that, that first of all, some people are surprised that, that you have anything to say about um, litigation, that you have anything to say about the court system, but we know that you do because this is a real issue that is plaguing our society because we are a Sioux happy people, and, and we don't even think about who it is that that, that we're suing sometimes. We don't care if they're believers or unbelievers. We don't care if we go before a righteous judge or an unrighteous judge. All we want is, is, is we want what is due us. And Father, I pray that you'll help us, Lord Jesus, to recognize in your word that we need to live different as, as your children. Father, we don't need to be consumed, Father God, by the things of this world. Father, we don't need to be consumed by the lifestyle that once um, condemned us to hell. We need to live righteous, holy, perfect lives, or at least strive for that. We know that our flesh is evil. We know, Lord Jesus, that we are, 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 are bent um, so often to do um, sinful things, but we also know that your spirit lives within us. And Father, that because you are in us, there isn't anything that we cannot overcome. Lord, help us to, to be able to, to wrestle with that reality. Help us every single day to strive to be more and more like you and less and less like this world. Father, as we enter into this time of invitation, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. If there's somebody in this room that is just struggling, Lord, I pray, Father, that they will they will just turn to you, that they'll turn to another brother and sister in Christ in this room to help walk them through whatever they're going through. Lord, be with us now during this time of invitation. First in Jesus' name we pray. 